This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. Stay tuned for more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. This is Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Carl Truman. And we're delighted today to have with us a special guest, uh, Gavin Ortland. Uh, Dr. Ortland is um, not just a, an academic. He is a pastor. He's the pastor of First Baptist Church in Ojai, California. Uh, Gavin, am I pronouncing that right, Ojai? Yeah, you got it exactly right. Okay, and, and, and give us, give us uh, an idea. Where along the coast are you located in, in Ojai? Can you see the ocean, first of all? Uh, you can't quite see the ocean. If you do a hike and you're starting to move that way, you might see it on a clear day. But okay. um, Ojai is about 80 miles northwest of L.A., kind of right near Ventura and Oxnard, so a little south gotcha. of where Santa Barbara is. Gotcha. And, 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 it, and you're Baptist. How did, how did this happen? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you have a brother who's a Presbyterian, you know, you went to a Presbyterian sem- seminary for your MDiv, correct? That's right. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I was uh, raised in the PCA, Presbyterian yeah. Church in America, but I became a Baptist at, uh, when, when I was in seminary at, 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 at Covenant, <laughs> at Covenant seminary. seminary. So, yeah. <laughs> Here we're, we're tackling the controversial bits right at right at the beginning. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, we're we're glad you're with us now. There's a number of different things we could talk to uh, uh, Gavin about, but but we're really excited about uh, his new book, which is entitled uh, "Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation: Ancient Wisdom for Current Controversy," uh, published by IVP. And uh, I've had a great deal of fun reading it. I mean, it's been challenging. It's, I've learned a lot of things. It's been very, very good. And, and I think just out of the starting blocks here, uh, help our, our listeners understand, first of all, uh, the importance of this whole idea of, of doctrinal or theological retrieval. This is a term that maybe some of our more well-read folks are beginning to hear now some, which is a good thing. But I wonder, first of all, just kind of talk broadly about uh, this whole project that we're seeing more and more of, thankfully, of theological retrieval. Yeah, I think one way that I've tried to help people appreciate why this is so valuable, and when I define that term, I usually just define it as, as simply as using historical theology to the end of systematic theology. And there's a bit more to it than that, because Often when we say theological retrieval, we have in mind doctrines that were perhaps neglected for some period of time. But um, I would say that two, two things that for me have helped me communicate why this is important, and I'm a big believer in it. One is that we're a part of the church, and this is a simple way to make the point, but the church extends through time as well as space. So just as for the same reason that we don't 
um, follow Jesus as an individual and neglect to join a church and neglect to listen to our brothers and sisters in Christ from other places. So for the same reason, we want to consider the testimony of brothers and sisters in Christ in other times. The second thing that has helped me communicate this is just the practical value of it. And I like to use the metaphor of travel. In the book on theological retrieval, I give three metaphors for why retrieval can benefit us. One is going to school. One is traveling to a different culture. One is seeing a counselor. And those are ways of getting at what I've personally experienced in my research in this. It, I never set out thinking I'd get onto this topic, but I just experienced something from church history and from the great theologians of the past that was so powerful. And it's like travel in the sense that when you go to another culture, you get perspective on some of the blind spots of your own culture. And it's just an incredibly enlarging experience. And that's one of the benefits, I think, of traveling to different periods of time in our studies. This book focuses on, on Augustine. And in some ways, uh, you know, Augustine's a giant, Protestants and Catholics, we all look back to Augustine in some way for, for the theology that we articulate in the present. Uh, but you're looking at an aspect of Augustine that's perhaps a little unusual or perhaps unfamiliar uh, to people, and that's the doctrine of creation. And part of the burden of the book is, is to use Augustine to help with contemporary discussions. And I, I've noticed this uh, in my own denomination uh, at Presbytery and things, where you will have an interesting divergence uh, between those who, who think that holding to a literal six 24-hour days is absolutely central to, to holding to any form of Christian orthodoxy. And on the other hand, uh, uh, the emergence of, of those within the church who are very concerned that an adherence to six-day creation is actually destroying the credibility of the faith for a rising generation of young people. So you're touching on something that's, that I think is of a very practical significance for anybody involved uh, in the church, certainly in church leadership at this particular point in time. Could you outline for the listeners why you think Augustine, who's writing, you know, 1,500 years before Darwin, a long time before the kind of questions that erupt today in Christian circles were, were pressing on us. Why is Augustine a helpful person in this context? Yes, this may be an example of retrieval that'd be similar to the counselor metaphor, because um, from my vantage point, we as American evangelicals, I really can't speak to evangelicals in other places as well as perhaps some of you could. But um, certainly, in my observation, American evangelicals have some eccentricities with respect to how we think about creation. For example, there's some aspects of creation we just don't think about very much. And so, Augustine, to my mind, can help us. I would say two reasons for that. One is that creation was very important to Augustine. And sometimes people who have only a passing familiarity with Augustine may not truly appreciate that. But he wrote, if you include his treatments on Genesis and the City of God and Confessions. He wrote five commentaries on Genesis. Um, it was foundational for him in his experience in coming back to the Orthodox faith, hearing Ambrose preach on Genesis 1 was very, very important for him, overcoming his own, I would argue, overly literalistic stumblings about Genesis 1 was a, an important part of his life and testimony. It was important for his theology he continued to wrestle with creation all his life long. 
in the book, I talk about this as an emotional doctrine for him. It had so much to do with how we understand the nature of human happiness. And that's very interesting. The second reason I think we can really benefit from Augustine is, as I said, we just have some, some oddities in, in how we think about creation. As you mentioned, Carl, there's such a polarization and such concern, and I would say this is one of the most divisive doctrines. In some ways, you might even think of creation as simultaneously one of the most divisive and most neglected doctrines because there's so much we don't do with this doctrine. When you think about how important uh, creation from nothing was for the early church or um, just the, the contingency of creation, that it's not necessary that God created. Things like this were so important. It seems to me a lot of Christians haven't reflected very much about those points today. Um, and then, of course, we have the camps and we have all of the warfare. And I'm, I'm a pastor. This has played out in my own ministry in very poignant ways. I'm very concerned about how it affects people, people who lose their faith over these issues, divisions that occur. And so I, I just think Augustine can be a helpful voice, not that he answers every question, but he's a helpful conversation partner as we work through this topic. There's been a lot of debate over why Genesis and the doctrine of creation appears in such a prominence in his confessions. Some arguing that, you know, maybe it wasn't there originally. It almost seems too abrupt for him to add all of these reflections about Genesis at the end of his confessions. You do a really, I think, an excellent job of, of helping us to understand, no, actually, there's, there's, there are good reasons uh, to understand why that was important enough for him uh, to include in, in a work as unique as, as the confessions. I wonder if you'd kind of unpack that a little bit um, why did this doctrine figure so prominently for Augustine, uh, not just as a scholar, but as a, as a Christian man? Why was it so important for him? There's an old criticism of Augustine that he wrote badly because he didn't. And someone, some have even said, even some high-level Augustine scholars have said, well, he didn't really know how to organize a book very well <laughs> because uh, the Confessions is such a poignant and personal book for the f first majority in the last several chapters, it takes a more abstract turn. And he's talking about Genesis 1 and the nature of time and things that just feel very different. But others have argued, I think rightly, that Augustine had a method to that. And what he's basically doing is tying in his own personal testimony of finding rest in God with this larger vision, which was common to the church fathers and the medievals, of all of creation longing for its rest. And the Sabbath day, the seventh day, became a type of this heavenly rest and the contemplation of God in heaven by the saints and angels. So I think there's a, a strategy to his writing, and I think that's partly why creation was so important for him. It, and as I try to emphasize in the book, it had such implications for creaturely happiness because he thought God made us longing for this rest and God made the whole world with this sort of sort of forward leaning imperfection and longing to participate in the divine rest, which is a fascinating, you know, agree or disagree as a modern evangelical for me to countenance that really stretched me into new territory. And I think it's helpful to consider that. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful way of putting it actually. I, Every year I, I get students to read Augustine's Confessions on some course or another, and they love the first 
nine books, uh, <laughs> and then it all falls apart for them. <laughs> you know, questions such as, you know, did somebody somehow join together two manuscripts in the tradition that were really two separate books? And, but I think that way of uh, putting it that, in some ways, Augustine's individual life is a microcosm of the of the cosmos. is is beautiful. I mean, like you, you know, Augustine. Maybe at times he wasn't the greatest writer, but he was certainly very careful and deliberate in how he puts his arguments and his books together. So, uh, though a little bit like Charles Taylor, I sometimes think these guys, if only they'd had a good editor, their books would be even better than they are. So, but you pull out a couple of specific themes. I mean, in one, in one way, as you talked about the sort of the general idea that Augustine helps us to realize that there are more aspects to creation than whether the clock was running for 24 hours between one day in Genesis and the next. You pick on a couple of themes, and one of them that, that really caught my eye, and this is a perennial, uh, probably for people who've reflected for a length of time as, as, as perplexing a thing about creation as anything, and that is, you know, would animals have died if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen? What, what about mortality, particularly not so much human mortality as animal mortality? Could you un unpack how Augustine addresses that uh, uh, Gavin, and, and, and maybe offer some reflections on it. Yes, this was one of the most fascinating uh, things for me to discover in Augustine as I did the research for this book, just carefully reading through a number of his works and discovering not only his view on this, the issue of animal death, but how vigorously he rebuked the, the opposite view. And the, the context for that is Augustine had been a Manichaean for 10 years and now he's facing the Manichaean charge, and he's very alert to combat that charge that the creation is not good. And they pointed to carnivorous animals as well as insects and as evidence that Genesis 1 is wrong, that God's creation is not good. And what was so striking to me, coming from my context, growing up in evangelical churches, is that Augustine doesn't say, well, those things just exist because of the fall. In fact, Augustine's very emphatic that um, carnivorous animals and insects and so forth, he talks a lot about even the sort of disgusting insects like maggots and worms and things like this. And he just, it's amazing the detail that he goes into and just marveling. You know, I've often thought if Augustine were alive today, he would enjoy watching nature documentaries because he obviously loves uh, learning about the little details of God's creation you know, there's a passage in the Confessions that's a favorite of mine where he's just rebuking his soul for not being quick to praise God when he watches lizards eating spiders outside of his home. And that's a good example of the flavor of his treatment of this. I mean, he's just, he revels in the animal kingdom. And his, his basic view is that uh, animal death is not bad. It is given to instruct us, to teach us spiritual lessons. He maintains that it is good, even though it can seem unpleasant. He's very, he actually, because he's so keen to combat the Manichaeans, he's very vigorous in rebuking the human tendency to sit in judgment upon an aspect of God's creation that we don't like. And he calls this perspectival prejudice, which is a way of basically saying, it just we're, we're judging based upon our experience and our angle of vision of something. Um, a crocodile or a lion might be unpleasant or fearsome to us, but that doesn't mean in the entire context of God's creation. It's bad or evil. 
And he is a, another fascinating thing is that he has a vision of good as developmental and dynamic. He doesn't think God made the world as perfect, but there's one passage in which he says, if God makes something imperfect and then brings it to perfection over time, what's wrong with that? That's the quote I start off this chapter with. That's interesting. And again, agree or disagree, I think modern Christians can reflect upon that. Uh, that's a category sometimes we, we lack. And um, so he doesn't think animal death is bad. He thinks God has a purpose that we may not discern in it. He thinks we can learn spiritual lessons from it. And he, I'll just conclude this answer with this metaphor, which was so poignant to me. He says, the tendency to sit in judgment on lions or crocodiles or insects is kind of like a lay person going into a mechanics shop, touching an instrument that he has no idea how it works and concluding that this is an evil instrument because he, he slices his hand on the instrument and hurts himself. He says, that's a failure to understand. It's because you're a lay person. You don't understand the purpose of this instrument. And Augustine says, he wants to caution us in our judgments. He wants to say, let's be very careful before we call something evil. Obviously, this point has a lot of relevance in terms of the current camps today. Yeah. Yeah. So that, and that was really interesting uh, to me to gain his perspective on the fact that, well, now, you know, prior to the fall, uh, there could have been predation because predation is not necessarily bad. That was a new category for me and challenged me uh, in a lot of ways that, that actually a crocodile prior to the fall might not have been a herbivore. <laughs> right. 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 And, and, and that, and that if, if crocodiles and lions were uh, indeed carnivores before the fall, if there was indeed animal predation, Augustine would say uh, that is absolutely no indictment upon the full goodness of the creation, but, but rather would represent some, some sort of a perspectival prejudice on our part. That was fascinating to me, and I had not heard that before and was actually quite helpful uh, in that point. Well, t- tell me about this. This is one thing that some folks find peculiar about uh, Augustine's doctrine of, of creation in terms of, you know, kind of instantaneous creation, kind of how he arrived at that point. Explain just a little bit about how he viewed the days of creation and, and, and how it fits his view. Okay. It's interesting for many modern readers, six days is way too short of a time, but Augustine's problem was that it was too long of a time. Right. And uh, part of this has to do with his I would say his theological instincts. He tends to think that it's a greater display. At least there's some passages where he gives me the impression he tends to think it's a greater display of God's omnipotence for him to just do it instantly. Mm-hmm. And then he does have a category for the unfolding of new things in creation from that instantaneous moment that God is still the creator of those things as well. But basically the main reason has to do with the text. He reads Genesis 1 and it was fascinating, you know, to Carl's point earlier about maybe Augustine benefiting from an editor. There's some passages where he'll offer one point of interpretation and then a page later offer a different one and not go back to correct the previous one. And so it's, it's sort of comical at times to see Augustine struggling with this text and you can feel his angst at times. But there's several things in the text that make him think this isn't a sort of straightforward pictorial narration that's just going blow by blow. One is the light before luminaries. He really agonized with this. Why are these first three days, 24 hours? We don't have the sun yet. And where's the light coming from? How is it flashing on and off? Another is God resting on the Sabbath. He said, this is, this makes it clear that this isn't completely a 
literalistic rendering of what is happening because God does not get tired and doesn't need to rest. Another is dischronology, so things out of order. So when it right. says in Genesis 2-4, when no shrub had yet appeared, and Augustine is just, you can picture him at his table pulling his hair out saying, but the plants have already been made. How is it saying no shrub has yet appeared? And those are the kinds of things he's agonizing with. And ultimately, he came to the view that I would put broadly within the sort of framework camp among modern interpretations where this is a uh, literary device in which the author is comparing God's work of creation to a Hebrew work week in a way, and he has a high view of accommodation. So God's trying to communicate in a way that the original recipients of this text could have understood and appropriated. Yeah. And then there's a lot of other weird stuff like the role of angels in Genesis <laughs> one and what he thinks about that. But that's a yeah. brief, brief yeah, stuff. That's good. That's helpful. Yeah. Well, as we draw to a close here, I uh, want to thank Gavin for coming on the program, but also want to mention a couple of other books that he's written. Uh, I think he was already alluded to his book from Crossway, Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, Why We Need Our Past to Have a Future. That's an excellent introduction to the kind of work of which uh, Gavin's uh, work on Augustine is a, a super example. But I also want to mention uh, a book that he's written on Anselm. It's slightly pricier than the Augustine book, <laughs> just, just slightly. So my advice to listeners is don't tell your wife you're buying it. Just, just do it. Uh, it's it's an excellent study of Anselm. I think it started off as a PhD thesis supervised by my old Aberdeen friend and contemporary, uh, Oliver Crisp, uh, who then went on to become a distinguished professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. And it's a great treatment that looks at uh, Anselm's proslogion. Uh, and yet refuses simply to focus on the proof of God's existence and does a great job of showing that that proof has to be set within the overall doxological context of what Anselm is doing there. And that book, I would say, is worth reading for, for numerous reasons. But one of them is this, that, that retrieval is not just about going back to, to cherry pick the early church fathers. You know, Augustine, in some ways, is a relatively easy sell. The medievals, too are a rich source of uh, knowledge and wisdom for us, as they were for the reformers and for the, the post-Reformation Puritans, Reformed Orthodox, uh, Reformed Baptists, etc. So I want to commend uh, to our listeners, type Gavin Ortland's name into Amazon and buy anything that you find that he's written. It's extremely helpful and is really helping to enrich contemporary theology by drawing deeply on the wells of the past so thanks very much for coming on the program gavin thanks so much for having me if uh, any of you would like to win a copy of uh, gavin's book on augustine please go to our website mortificationspin.org where you'll have a chance to enter your name into a draw for a, a free copy if you don't win please get hold of a copy anyway it's a fascinating stimulating book and a a model of how to do irenic theology in uh current culturally theologically ecclesiastically fraught and divided worlds it's, it's a it's a wonderful book simply as an example of how to do theology as well while you're at our website please uh, if you're able uh, make a, a donation we are a listener supported podcast all that remains for me otherwise is to thank you for listening and to look forward to being with you next time i see trees of green red roses too I see them blue
for me and you And I think to myself What a wonderful world Yes, I think to myself What a wonderful Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. I just got notification that my book is once again the number one bestseller on Amazon in religion and philosophy. All right. Last time Rodrea tweeted it, I shot that. I think it means I've I've had more than three pre-orders in a single day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think it's the most highly competitive of categories. <laughs> well, we can act like it is. Oh, yes. Yeah. Take any title you can. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is thankful for your partnership. With your help, we continue to uphold solid biblical doctrine and equip Christians to do the same. The Alliance is a working coalition of men and women from diverse backgrounds who share a common passion for the truth of God's Word. With your prayerful support, we continue sharing that Word with those who are lost and encouraging the Church with solid biblical teaching through broadcasts, publishing, and events. The message we proclaim is one of ultimate hope, which originates not in man, but in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It's the kind of hope that increases our joy and changes lives. Please prayerfully consider supporting this proclamation of hope to a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Join us. You can make a gift online at alliancenet.org support. That's alliancenet.org support. Or call 1-800-488-1888.